Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. David Michaels, as an epidemiologist and professor at the George Washington University School of Public Health, he has extensive experience in research, regulatory, and public policy and program administration. He was appointed by President Barack Obama and became the longest-serving assistant secretary in the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's history, otherwise known as OSHA. He's also the author of The Triumph of Doubt, Dark Money, and the Science of Deception. It's a fantastic and fascinating read. Today, we're talking about the way science is manipulated and leveraged against regulation in favor of the industry. David explains that we can look at it as public relations disguised as science. He takes us through many ways industries have manipulated and withheld information to make a profit, the tobacco industry being the most bananas example, and skincare as well. We talk about mining and lung cancer rates and the NFL's response to players suffering from brain injuries and concussions. David's argument is that even when we look at studies, they don't always display information at face value. In fact, sometimes the entire point of creating them is to cause confusion. David explains that we need to think about new ways to structure research, that we need to examine what we believe to be real science and who we can trust. Although the responsibility to change this relies on the government, he gives us consumers a few places to start. But the government has to step up to the plate here. They have to have the power to protect people. And they have to protect them in a way that they can act before people are getting sick. Let's get right to my chat with David Michaels. So in terms of this book, which is The Triumph of Doubt, you're talking about the use of science, and I'm going to put that in quotes, right? The manipulation of science, the perversion of science for industry, and the way that it's leveraged against regulation, right? And yeah, You know, one way to think about it is it's not really science. It's science. It's public relations disguised as science. Yeah. And we all understand that public relations includes things that are True, partially true, in some cases totally untrue because in the corporation's case, they want to get something for it. They want to market a product or they want to convince the government of something or, or not to do something. This is the same thing. This is public relations. But when we're dealing with government agencies or we're dealing with the public, they want to see science. If you want to know about the health effects of a, a product, you look to a scientist. And so these are really like advertising or public relations experts disguised as scientists, and they turn out products that look like science, but they're not. They're literature reviews that give the sponsor of that study exactly the result they want. If they wanted to say, 
you know, only exposure is above a certain level are dangerous. That's what the report will say. It's, mm -hmm. you know, there's no real integrity or honesty to it. And it's completely legal. Absolutely. And it's often, particularly in the digital age, pushed out and, and then it's interpreted. And I mean, I say this as someone who I think I share the same frustration as a lot of people. And now we have a team of PhDs at the company, both on the content side and the product development side, looking at research and sorting it and then translating it. Because we don't – scientific literacy is beyond most of our capacity. Like I, I can read a report and think that I understand it and I might get it completely wrong. Right. And you know, often I'm asked, what do individuals do? What can we do? And the answer is around the science, you really can't do much because you can't be expected to understand all the science or do the research when you pick up a bottle of shampoo and you look at the, the ingredients on there because the, the FDA does have a few requirements and one requirement is to list the ingredients. Right. But to go back into the literature and figure out what those things mean. I mean, I'm an epidemiologist. I can sort of understand the toxicology, the animal studies, but that's not my expertise. Yeah. So you need a team of people to do that. And you can't expect an individual to do it. That's why in some ways when people say to me, what can individuals do? I say, vote. Yeah. Because you need the government to protect you because you can't do it yourself. Yeah. And the government, as I know you were the head of OSHA for seven years, right? And it was your job to protect workers. But as you say, like OSHA does a pitiful job. That's right. It's a, all of our agencies are very weak. I mean, OSHA in particular is weak. It, you know, it's underfunded. It has enough inspectors to go to every workplace once every 165 years. Mm. And most of its standards are hopelessly out of date. There are other agencies that are have more resources, have more people. But our whole regulatory system is, is based on sort of the wrong concepts. Mm -hmm. Like when I look at toxic chemicals, whether they're in cosmetics or they're in food or in the air, the system now is essentially innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that makes sense for people. And our criminal justice system is a great system in that we consider people innocent until they're proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be guilty. But chemicals aren't like that yeah. or they shouldn't be. But unfortunately, the way the system works says that the government or other scientists have to show that the chemical is harmful before it could be pulled from exposing us. And that's a very high bar. And as a result, there are many, many chemicals out there that we're all exposed to and we probably shouldn't be. Tens of thousands of chemicals. Exactly. And we don't – and here's the thing. For those tens of thousands, most of them we know very little about. We used, At OSHA, we'd call this the body in the morgue method. Once you see people getting really sick or dying, then you could start the process to eliminate the chemical or at least control exposure. But that's way too late. Mm -hmm. So we have to rethink this and say how do we essentially put in precaution first to make sure we're not using chemicals that could be dangerous. Yeah. No, I mean it, it seems completely backward and obviously right. that's the case with the personal care industry where the U.S. has – regulated or restricted 11 ingredients and the EU has restricted 1,500 or more at this point? Exactly. Yeah. No, there's no excuse for this except the Food and Drug Administration, even if they wanted to restrict more chemicals, the law gives them no power at all. I mean, the, the, the food, drug and cosmetic legislation, which is the basis for the FDA, is something like 1,600 pages and two pages are on cosmetics. Mm. There's just no interest. And I'm, I'm sure that's because you know a bunch of men looked at this, they passed it, they said, well, 
you know, personal care items, they're optional. People don't have to use them. Women mostly use them. And I think in their head, they have this idea that, you know, they're sort of vanity related. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, we don't really care. You're, you're, you're taking it on yourself. It's a terrible attitude. Yeah. And as a result, people are exposed to things they shouldn't be exposed to. It's wrong. Yeah. So let's go back to sort of what happens in, in product defense science. I think that's what you call it, right? Or litigation science. So, and throughout the book, I mean, fascinating examples from the NFL, from the emissions gate. We bought one of those cars. A Volkswagen diesel, the Volkswagen sure. Volkswagen diesel. And others, obviously, big tobacco, sugar, yeah. alcohol. So, and big tobacco sort of created the playbook, right? They established the standard of creating doubt. That's right. You know, there were companies and industries before that 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 took on the science, certainly the lead industry involved in lead paint and, and lead gasoline, which was causing all sorts of terrible illness long before tobacco got going, and, and the sugar industry. But tobacco did, as you said, they created the playbook. They did it so well. They, did, they made a product that is killing hundreds of thousands of people a year. They raised question, enough questions about the science that they could just go on unfettered for a long time. And we also call it the tobacco playbook because as a result of the litigation, there are millions of pages of documents that they had to release that are all online at the University of California, San Francisco. And we could see exactly how the playbook works. Mm -hmm. There's no other example like that. But tobacco started it in that regard. And the model is to hire scientists, not even necessarily to work for your company because you don't want to taint them. But there are outside consulting firms who specialize in product defense. And they, their business model is to create the fiction, whatever that sponsor needs. So if you're making a product and someone says that product could be dangerous, you hire one of these companies. And they have scientists who understand the regulatory system, who are prepared to go to court to testify. And they look at the data. They tend not to do their own studies. They pull things together and they opine. They say, I'm a great expert. I look at this and... There's too much uncertainty, and that's just what tobacco did, and that's what is being done for pesticides, for cosmetics, for whatever the product is. You know what they're going to say in advance. Mm -hmm. And In fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book is when I was in the government, both in the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, I saw that up close. I saw when companies that, that were, had products that were really making people sick would bring in these so-called experts to claim that we didn't have any proof that these were dangerous. You know, I, I saw it, I had to deal with them directly, and I realized that isn't well known, that, that, that there is an industry doing this as holding back the ability of the government to protect people. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be aware of that. We have to think about how do we, how do we protect the integrity of the science that we need to make sure people are safe. Yeah. And one of the things was, I don't know if it was big tobacco or what, if it came out of, I don't recall whether it was from the NFL, but some what's the law that passed where essentially if, if a study was created that proved like, oh, CTE is real mm -hmm. in the NFL, and then these product defense firms somehow there was litigate there was legal action so they can have access to all the data and then they can manipulate it. That's right. The Shelby Amendment. This was Richard Shelby, who's a, a senator from Alabama. This was done for the tobacco industry, though tobacco found other 
industries to front for them, which they need the same thing. They say, if the government does a study or if the government pays for a study to, say, a university like the one I work at, I'm at George Washington University, all my raw data have to be available to anyone who requests it. And then, essentially, there's a, a trick that industry, that the product defense industry can do when they, they have epidemiologists who can take a positive study, a study that finds a relationship between, say, exposure to lead and children's neurological development. And if you have the raw data, you could change things around in terms of your exposure estimates. There are things you could do. You can turn a positive study negative. It's very easy. If you have the raw data and you know what you want to do, and then it looks like you have these two equal and opposite studies, therefore the public is confused, regulators don't know what to do, that second study has no real validity. The first study was done with a hypothesis. You know, hypothesis. It says in advance, this is the methods we're going to follow. This is how we do science. The, af the one afterwards is just sort of a, an after-the-fact analysis to make things look different. Yeah. But because tobacco got this law passed, I see this over and over again. So like there's one important set of studies done to look at the effect of breathing the particulates that come out of diesel engines. Like when you see trucks and buses and dirty car diesel cars, they put out soot. It's very hard to figure out what are the effects of that exposure because on the street we're exposed to everything. Mm -hmm. But there were some studies done in underground mines where they had no other hazardous exposures except these giant engines that were putting out this diesel exhaust. They're diesel engines to do the mining. And they found, not surprisingly, that workers in those mines were at increased risk of lung cancer. The government did that study. The industry that makes engines and the underground mining industry, they got the raw data. They've reanalyzed it six times, each time showing that the results aren't real. The results are real and new studies have shown the same thing. But they specialize in causing confusion. Mm -hmm. Right. The, tri the triumph of doubt. Yeah. You know, this idea of like, who can I trust? And I think it's hard, you know, science... And we deal with this all the time at Goop because people love to believe that we're anti-science, which is absolutely not true. But it's often – it almost becomes religious for people, right? Like if it's science – and again, yeah. I'm putting that in quotes – then it's the truth. And it doesn't matter where it came from. And that's wielded like a weapon. And again, like going to – I guess we can say science with a capital S, like real science, like something, as you said, where it's – stated hypothesis and a controlled, you know, a, yeah. a proper study, then that's something that we can trust. But it's... Well, unfortunately, it's not. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence of something called the funding effect, that the funder gets what they want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a big issue right now in e-cigarettes. When I look around, I mean, this is a, you know, 15 years ago, they didn't exist. We've gone from really nothing at all to now a product that millions of adolescents use on a regular basis. We have no idea what the long-term effects are of breathing in. You know, you have a, an oil-based product with fragrances and flavors and nicotine. You're pulling it into your lungs and keeping your lungs and pushing it out. Now, compared to combustible cigarettes, there's no question. They're safer. It's, if you're trying to get off of smoking cigarettes, that's probably great. But we have millions of kids who never smoked and who don't need to be using this. So then the question is, what's the research? And who, who do we trust? Yeah. Now, Juul and others are beginning to pay for research because we do really need to know what the long-term effects are. 
But given the history of the tobacco industry, how can we believe research that's produced by tobacco companies? Yeah. So we need to think about a new way to structure the research. I mean, look, Juul should be paying for that research, but we need to have it insulated enough that we really have the research has integrity. We'll get back to Dr. David Michaels in just a second. I am not what you would call a from-scratch baker, and our food editor, Caitlin, tells me that's okay. So I appreciate companies that take some of the work out of preparing good food, and I like products that both my kids and I can enjoy. Simple Mills makes everything from crackers, cookies, and snack bars, to baking mixes and pancake mixes and frostings, and they're made from only simple whole food ingredients and nothing artificial. All Simple Mills products are non-GMO and naturally free of grains, gluten, and soy. And the number one ingredient in each of their products is always something nutrient-dense, like nuts or seeds. So it's a little easier to follow that 80-20 rule. Simple Mills makes nine different baking mixes, including artisan bread, pancakes and waffles, muffin mixes, brownies, pizza dough, and more. The number one ingredient in each of the mixes is almond flour, and they have less sugar than most other baking mixes. Another Simple Mills favorite of mine are their almond flour crackers, specifically the cheddar flavor. I'll admit, they're dangerous, but if you wanna get a lot of steps in as you walk to your desk, to your kitchen, they might be your thing. I couldn't stop until I ate the whole box. From now through June 30th, use promo code GOOP15 for 15% off your order on simplemills.com while supplies last. That's simplemills.com using code GOOP15 for 15% off your order while supplies last. Not too long ago on the Goop podcast, I sat down with Dr. Robin Burzen. She's an incredibly wise functional medicine practitioner. We talked about the ways our healthcare system is dated and how we can bridge the gap between wellness and medicine. When Robin realized our current healthcare system was due for a major upgrade, she created Parsley Health. Parsley Health combines the best of modern medicine with a functional, holistic approach. Their mission is to get to the root cause of illness instead of just treating the symptoms, and to ultimately help people optimize their well-being. When you sign up with Parsley Health, you can expect hour-long doctor's appointments, advanced diagnostic testing that looks at everything from your hormones to your gut to your microbiome. Their doctors work with you to create a personalized health plan that factors in nutrition, fitness, sleep, and supplementation. And you're even paired with a health coach who will help support you and keep you accountable when you need it. A Parsley Health membership includes five doctor visits as well as five health coach visits per year. And now their online care program, Complete Care Anywhere, allows you to access your doctor and personal health coach from home. As a new member of Parsley Health, I appreciate how easy the site is to navigate, and I love having access to thorough health care from my couch. Right now, Parsley Health is offering our listeners an exclusive offer of $150 off a year-long membership. Just go to parsleyhealth.com and enter code GOOP. That's P-A-R-S-L-E-Y health.com and use code GOOP to get $150 off a year-long membership. Back to my chat with Dr. David Michaels. So what could that possibly look like? Is that a version of you want to market a product, 
you have to prove it's safe. And, and in doing so, you have to plow a certain amount of money into some sort of federal government entity where it will be looked at by the appropriate scientific team? I mean, that's the ideal. Look, for personal care products, we have no requirements to show it's safe or dangerous. So that's, yeah. that's the Wild West. But even with other products that go into food, for example, where there is some requirement to, to test things, what you've described at least exactly the, the model I'd like to see where you have either the government or some trustworthy institution that's very transparent, that isn't run by industry, that collects money from producers that they have to give put they have to pay for the research. They're going to be doing the research anyway, they should. And then this entity would find independent scientists to, to do that research. The same amount of research would be done, but we'd actually be able to trust the results. Yeah. And there there are a couple of models actually out there like that. There's a, a pretty good one called the Health Effects Institute, which the motor vehicle industry and EPA set up a couple of decades ago, and they collect money from automobile companies, and the EPA provides money as well. And they really are insulated from industry's needs. It's not perfect, but I think there, I think we have to be thinking about this. There are some, obviously, there, there are companies that, that we've learned to trust, but there are so many we don't know Yeah. that, that we really need a system. Of, yeah, and it needs to, because wasn't it, wasn't the NFL who gave a grant for like $50 million to the NIH and then they tried to influence exactly who would be doing the study and <laughs> exactly. and then essentially revoked their support when yeah. they didn't like the output. Yeah, the National Football League is a really, you know, it's a bleak example of this. You'd think that they could do better. But, you know, in the early 90s, when we began to see the first results of people having multiple traumas, not even necessarily concussions. We don't know whether it's the concussions themselves. But first of all, people were getting concussions and being carried off the field unconscious. There were reports of, of football players with behavioral issues that looked like they were recent. The National Football League, rather than saying, let's figure out this problem, the commissioner put together a committee, which he called the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee. So it was already labeling mild. Yeah, that's the message. It's not, this can't be very serious. And then put on the committee a bunch of people who work for the league or for, worked for the or the worked for the teams, and the chair was his own personal physician who wasn't a neurologist, was a, a rheumatologist, a guy, you know, with no background. And they spent 10 years really doing almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And they did these studies, they didn't publish any of them at first, where they had like laboratory animals and took hammers and hit them on the head and stuff that was pretty worthless until the problem kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then the first players were dying from really terrible early deaths. And you had the first brain autopsy where Dr. Ben and Omelouche saw what we now call as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And when that came out, the response of this expert committee the NFL put together was to demand that Omelou retract his study, mm. not to say, let's figure this out. And, you know, within a year or two, as often what happened, there were enough terrible deaths and autopsied brains that the NFL could no longer deny it. And now they've sort of stepped up to the plate and they're working with the National Football League Players Association to try to figure out how to make it safer. It's not clear you can make it safer. Yeah. But at least they're trying to figure it out now. But we lost a decade or more because the instinct was just to do the wrong thing. Yeah, it's so wild. And, and I, you talk about this in terms of the scientists who are sort of perverted or not doing good work. And it's 
Is it conscious or is it just like they just want to believe? This is the question. I mean, I, I'm an optimist and I look favorably on people's motives. And I have to think that they've convinced themselves that these chemicals aren't dangerous, that, that lead exposure isn't destroying these kids' brains, that you know, putting soot in the air isn't causing cancer. I like to think that they've convinced themselves it's true because if not, I mean, how do you, how do you look so in the eye and think that they could be lying about something that's really hurting people? You know, there's a, a famous quote from Upton Sinclair that I begin the book with. It's difficult to get a man to believe something when his salary depends on him not believing it. Yeah. And that's – I think that's what goes on. That you, you get involved in this and you're working for a company that makes a product that you think highly of and your salary is based on this. And, and some of these product defense scientists get – you know, their salary is in the million-dollar range. Yeah. Because they testify in court. That, and they, they convince themselves that all of these concerns about toxicity are overblown. They're wrong. What's interesting though is if you go back and look at what they said 10 years ago, the science has shown that they were totally wrong. But that doesn't mean they, they rethink yeah. their approach. Well, you also write too about how – and this I know happens in, within the pharmaceutical industry as well, probably in every part of government, that there's this – passage back and forth. People will work in regulation, then they'll go and work for a product defense company, make, I'm sure, many, 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 many times the salary, understand exactly how regulation is made yeah. and use it against the entity that they used to regulate or the, where they regulated. Yeah, the, the revolving door. No, I mean, after I was at OSHA for a few years, very well-known consultants would come up to me and say, you know, now's the time to cash out. Mm. I could go work in the private sector and really make a lot of money. And, you know, I didn't do that, obviously. I went back to academia where I love I, I love teaching and writing. But we don't pay our government employees very much money, mm -hmm. especially at the top level. I mean, I took a huge pay cut to work at OSHA. And that was okay for me. But I went from academia. If I went from the private sector to, to run OSHA, to be the top person at OSHA, I probably would – the salary would – my salary would have been cut by 80 percent or more. Mm -hmm. And the way a lot of people look at that is, well, they're going into the government to get their ticket punched or they're going to work for a few years, but then they could really make some money when they go outside. And as long as you have that sort of system, we're going to have people on the outside who have a lot of incentive to make the agency do what their employer wants them to do. Mm -hmm. And the people in the agencies are thinking, well, you know, in a couple of years, I may want to go work for one of these companies and I don't want to piss them off too much. And and it leads to something we call industry capture, that mm -hmm. the, the industry has a great deal of say over the, the agency that is supposed to be <laughs> overseeing the, the industry. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of the scientific and, – and I know you mentioned that a lot of these product defense companies don't create their own studies. They just yeah. reanalyze data until it fits the narrative right. that works for them. And then I was shocked to – Learn this. I was reading this book by Gerald Posner called Pharma, but he was he sort of went deep into the history of the Sackler family and you know the oldest of the three brothers. He created essentially Medicine Avenue. Right. He started all these medical journals, and so that happens, I guess, throughout the industry, right? That I mean, the Sackler family exemplifies the the tight relationship between science and public relations in the same people. I mean, these yeah. were physicians who pioneered public relations. I and mean, that's the fa one, one of the many fascinating things about the Sacklers. Yeah. And 
But that then they would create these journals. So they were sort of working it on all angles, creating the advertising and marketing, standing up journals, staffing them with some reputable people, some not yeah. reputable people, pushing out these peer-reviewed studies. So, like, can you just talk us through sort of the – like, how many of the journals – I know you call out regulatory toxicology and pharmacology. Yeah. You say, for many years, the editor-in-chief was Gio Bata Gori, who went from heading the National Cancer Institute's smoking and health program to being a well-paid defender of secondhand smoke for big tobacco. Right. And the journal's editorial board would meet at the offices of Keller and Heckman the law firm that represented the trade association for the plastics industry and other industry groups. The board is filled with prominent product defense consultants. Not everyone on the editorial board is in the consulting business. A few are government and academic scientists, and not all the papers published are product defense efforts. The result is that, to the uninitiated judge or jury member, articles in regulatory toxicology and pharmacology look credible. You know, there's a there's a, a whole sort of network of different publications. The Sacklers put out ones that were aimed not so much at like academic physicians or, or to students, but they were aimed at practicing physicians to convince them to prescribe certain drugs. Yeah. And so they would shape the way they present those drugs. They were like you see on TV when it says, you know, you have they they um, they read the side effect list on the side, but why this new drug will make people happier or you know, allow them to urinate more easily or whatever it is. That's the first thing that to market a product. And of course, with opioids, they, they did that. When they became opioid producers, they took a couple of different studies, they distorted what they meant, and they pushed that out first to convince the Food and Drug Administration that their new, their new opioids, oxycodone, for example, were not particularly addictive, right. even though it wasn't true. And then to push that out to physicians to say, you should be prescribing this because this will make your patients happy and they'll come back to you. And then, of course, because they're pharmaceutical companies, they had all sorts of incentives to the, the physicians who prescribed the most. They would take them to Hawaii and give them a lot of cash, things like that. But even separate from that stuff, which is you know just the most blatant overselling a product that we shouldn't have allowed to be sold that way, you, know, you have these journals like regulatory uh, pharmacology and toxicology, which exist so companies can say, here's a study that shows my product is not very dangerous. It's been peer-reviewed. Mm -hmm. And they can then, you know, some agencies will only consider peer-review studies. For example, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which categorizes exposures whether or not they cause cancer or not. They will only review literature that's in the peer-review studies that are in the peer review literature. So some years ago, they were considering carbon black, which is like soot, but it's actually a, a industrial product. And the industry wanted to get some studies in there. And there weren't very good studies. They, but they, they paid for them. They were done really fast. They paid a journal to spend a weekend peer reviewing them so they could then appear to be peer reviewed. It's, you know, there's no relationship to what we think of as the scientific enterprise that goes through a serious peer review process where independent scientists look at it and they raise questions. It goes back and forth. And look, peer review is not the answer. You can get, you know, studies that are peer reviewed aren't necessarily good and they can have mistakes, but at least it's part of a process that means something. And that's been really distorted by yeah. these journals. And there, are, there, are, there aren't that many of them, but there are enough that 
they're out there. You know, when I was in the government and I saw papers from there being presented to me, you know, I would laugh. And I, I, I knew exactly what they were trying to do. But most people don't do that. And judges and juries, this comes up in litigation all the time, they have no idea. They look at a paper that's printed, you know, it looks very good. It's in a, a what looks like a good journal with a nice name. It can be 80 pages long, which that's a sign already that it's a fake article because no one publishes an 80-page article. But it looks very good to a jury. And that's why they're doing those. And that's yeah. the whole thing is just to protect the product, not to make people's health better. So how many, like sort of how rampant is this as consumers? And again, I know we started this by yeah. saying this, this can't be the job of consumers. It has to be the job of governments or NGOs. Like how do you, how can you tell, I know you, most most reputable journals require all disclosures, right? And then is it is it simply like we shouldn't accept anything unless it comes from a certain subset of journals? Well, and where's that list? And and you have to look at who paid for the study. And right. that's it's unfortunate because so many studies are paid for by producers. And some of them are honest and some aren't. But that's why we need a different system. There are certainly some journals which when I look at, I think, you know, why are – you know, they're, they're questionable. On the other hand, the smart people who operate some of those journals attract some studies that are not product defense. They're just regular studies. And they want people, they're academics who want to get published, they publish there. So you can't just dispose of them all. One thing that just really shocked me in the government is the government does not require any sort of financial conflict of interest disclosure when you're submitting evidence to a regulatory proceeding. So if I'm a, a scientist who works for a chemical company, if I want to get an article published in Science Magazine or the New England Journal of Medicine, I have to include a great deal of disclosure, who I work for, what the relationship is between me and that company. If I'm an independent academic scientist, I'm not allowed to sign a confidentiality uh, contract that said that the company that paid for it has the right to hide the results. Hmm. That You can't publish in the medical journal if you've signed a contract like that. The government has no requirement like that. Hmm. And so companies can put in studies done by academics, and you never know what control the, the, the sponsor had over the study. So I introduced the, the idea in OSHA. I said, if you're going to be submitting data for a regulatory proceeding, we're asking you to provide the same conflict of interest disclosure you would to if you were submitting to a medical journal. That infuriated the Republican senators who oversee OSHA. I was called down to the Hill, to Capitol Hill, by Lamar Alexander, who was the chair of the com committee that oversaw OSHA. And he and 13 other senators signed a letter saying, why would you even ask people? Doesn't, wouldn't that discourage scientists from participating in government activities? I said, no, that's the opposite. You want integrity and you want to know the, the basic question of who paid for a study is important for the government to know. It's important for the people of the United States to know. And he backed off, fortunately. I mean, Nature magazine did a big editorial saying, of course, everybody should be disclosing financial conflict of interest. What's the question here? Yeah. But that's how backward our system is. So what are we going to do about it? Well, you know, I like to look at this optimistically, as I said. I, you know, I think <laughs> a lot of the problems that we've had in the regulatory system predate Donald Trump. I mean, the, the weakness of the Food and Drug Administration in regulating personal care products dates back decades. Yeah. 
Almost 100 years. Exactly. I mean, they just never stepped up to the plate. But even in certainly the Obama administration, which I worked in, a lot of the, the problems we see were, were rampant there. The, the very first meetings to slow down regulation of e-cigarettes were led by government agencies under Obama. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we were looking at what's going on with the Boeing 737 MAX. The, the FDA is, has essentially abdicated and lets Boeing oversee all the safety concerns around this. And obviously, that was a failure. We had two crashes with three hundred more than 300 people killed and hundreds of jets have been grounded. It's really hurting that industry. It's hurting those workers. All of those predate Donald Trump. But he's making it much worse. Mm-hmm. The the industry, the agencies are, are hemorrhaging good people. They're trying to roll back many of the important regulations. You know, now we're facing this this coronavirus possible pandemic, and the structure that that had been built, which that OSHA was very much part of, to protect Americans if there's a any sort of infectious disease epidemic, that's been absolutely dismantled. When I look at this now, I think, well, you know, when the when the political winds shift and we have a new administration and there's a commitment to protecting the American people, we have to rebuild our system. And in some ways, perhaps we could think that Donald Trump did us a favor Mm -hmm. because he has so destroyed some of these agencies that we have to rebuild them and we won't won't make the same mistakes we made in the past. Tick them down to the studs. Yeah. And, you know, but EPA's rules, for example, or OSHA's rules say that, you know, chemicals are innocent until proven guilty. Well, let's change that. You know, if we're going to have to rebuild it, let's come up with new ways to do this. Let's, let's you know, in Europe, they have a requirement for many chemicals that you could be exposed to, and essentially no data, no market. Mm -hmm. You have to show that the product is safe. And so this is what we should be doing with personal care products. Yeah. No, and throughout the, I mean, and you talk a lot about how there's always an outcry about cost, right? And then Boeing's a good example of like, what's the cost now, people? But like the front loading the cost, which is typically always overinflated and then much lower. And I loved the example of the OSHA regulation that happened under your time during, or during the AIDS epidemic about how we need sharps sharps disposals. People need to wear gloves. And there was an outcry, right? Right. right. This was during the AIDS epidemic and hepatitis B and, and HIV and other bloodborne pathogens were really threatening the health of healthcare workers. There used to be – I started working in a hospital in the 1980s when there were 16,000 hepatitis B cases every year in hospital workers, which they got from patients. Mm. OSHA – issued a standard called bloodborne pathogens that says basic stuff like you have to have a sharps container in every hospital room. And if you're working in areas where you have direct contact with humans, you have to wear gloves. That was very controversial. Dentists told us that they wouldn't be able to practice dentistry if we made them wear gloves. And this was during the 1990s. OSHA stood their ground, did not roll it back. So disgusting. the, I can't imagine that. I know, exactly. It, well, <laughs> can you imagine going to a dentist who wouldn't wear gloves? Oh, but, God. And it's a very, it's an incredibly effective standard. Hepatitis B is, and HIV are almost, almost never transmitted in hospitals now. We've saved, no doubt, many hundreds of lives. And people have forgotten that it was an OSHA requirement. It's now part of everyday life in hospitals and healthcare facilities. You wear gloves, you change the gloves, and it protects patients as well. Yeah. What's amazing to me is we have no OSHA standard for to protect healthcare workers from airborne infections like 
the new coronavirus or skin-borne infections like MRSA, which people get. We were working very hard on that when I was at OSHA. When the Trump administration came in, they killed that effort. Mm. I really, I hope now that it's revived because we're facing a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of two things. Is it like Semmelweis, Semmelweis, the doctor who made the connection between people working in the morgue and then delivering babies and babies and mothers dying and suggested that everyone watch their hands. And he was vilified and outcast and went into a mental institute and died. (laughs) So how much of it do you think is aversion, just adherence to the status quo and any aversion to change? And how much of it is driven by big industries lining the pockets of politicians. Yeah. Well, I think it's all of those. I mean, I think what happens is if you've got a product that you're selling and you're convinced it's a safe product and whatever people are saying, they're wrong. Yeah. That you hire people to say the right thing and you and you buy it. And you know, I guess the guilt, I, right, well, of knowing that so. you're harming people and then having to own that and they, would probably keep you perpetuating this myth, right? I, you know, I, I don't think they feel guilty. I think they get self-righteous. And that's yeah. my impression. They think all these scientists, these these eggheads. Well, and I talk about this when I testified at a congressional hearing a year after I left OSHA. It was about uh, protecting workers in OSHA. And I was I had been head of OSHA for seven years. And I was back in academia. And I was there on this congressional panel with three representatives of, of employer groups and a Republican congressman from Wisconsin, Glenn Grothman walked in. He looked at the panel. He said, oh, the Democrats have brought in a professor again. Like, how could a professor really know anything? The fact that, you know, I'd forgotten more about OSHA than he'll ever know. But it's this idea that other people are wrong. You know, we we ha- we have it right. So, I mean, I tell the story about Johnson & Johnson, which is a very well-reputable, you know, re- well-reputed company. They made this iconic product, baby powder also sold as body powder, you know, baby powder aiming at, at babies, body power, pot powder primarily at women for personal hygiene, marketed particularly to women of color. There have been indications and in studies since the mid-1970s that talcum powder is often contaminated with asbestos or asbestos-like mm-hmm. fibers. And it makes sense because talc is a mineral, it's mined, and it comes from mines where there's also asbestos. And it's very hard to, f- to prove there is no asbestos because it's a very fine powder and you'd have to look at a lot of it. But starting in the 70s, mineralogists were finding asbestos in with the talcum powder, not just in the mine, but actually in the bottles. And in the 70s, Johnson Johnson was able to convince the FDA not to take this issue on. And then in, in the year 2000, the National Toxicology Program, which is an interagency office in the, in the U.S. government, which looks at toxicology and toxicity of different exposures, took on this question of talc. And the internal documents from the National Toxicology Program all said, we should categorize talc with these fibers as causing cancer. And that would require putting a label on it. And even the stuff with which we don't find the, as, the asbestos fibers, we should say it's probably causing cancer because we, don't, we can't prove that it doesn't have it. Well, Johnson Johnson and the mining companies and their trade association hired the same scientists who worked for tobacco and the same lawyers who worked for tobacco to essentially question all the studies that were used by the National Toxicology Program. And it was a combination of 
political pressure. They went to the White House. It was the George W. Bush administration. They went to Congress. They said, we're going to affect your budget. And they put enough pressure on, you know, for, political pressure from above and then raising questions about all the science that the NTP just threw its hands up. The memos are remarkable. They say things like, and this is the internal memos of the industry people saying, time to come up with more confusion. And that was the strategy. And it worked. And as a result, many people never knew that baby powder could be contaminated with asbestos. And then when the studies started coming out showing that women who used baby powder were at greater risk of ovarian cancer, you know, Johnson Johnson, of course, has fought that very heavily. Mm -hmm. But in the most recent cases, there's this one big case in, in St. Louis that I write about. 22 women sued. The jury found all of them had – the jury found that there was a relationship between their baby powder exposure and ovarian cancer. The jury awarded the Meeks $25 million. But then they went beyond that. And based on those memos that I write about in the book, the jurors issued a, a $4 billion punitive damage award against Johnson & Johnson to send them the message yeah, because they they read these memos, and I think for all of us who who have been raised with Johnson Johnson, and you know, we're we're shocked to see them. I mean, I certainly when I saw those memos, and uh, when I read about the book, I was actually a fact witness. I was brought into this case to look at these memos. My jaw dropped. Yeah, well, no, and it's it's so often what happens too. And it, going back to oxycodone and Purdue, yeah. it's you know they've made thirty five billion dollars and then they've paid what like a billion dollars in fines and punitive this, damage at this point. That's right, and this is the case. You know, last week, you know, Wells Fargo was issued a, a fine for, you know, essentially manipulating people's accounts and putting making all these fake accounts. It was outrageous. It hurts people. It hurt people in many many ways. They were issued a fine of three billion dollars. It sounds like a lot of money. It's tiny. Yeah. And, you know, even you know. It, all of these companies, they haven't paid a big price for what they've done. Now, Johnson Johnson's share value went down when they're because they're facing a lot of lawsuits, and maybe that's a message. Yeah. But I'm hoping that you know we we see companies with greater integrity that yeah. that that thinking in the long run. First of all, it's it's not the right thing to do to hide these hazards. If you if you have a hazard, figure it out and do, deal with it. But maybe. If morality isn't enough to, to drive them to do the right thing, maybe it's fear of getting caught and getting some real – And some real damage. And some yeah. real damage. Like wiping out all the profits that they've right. made from that. That's right. Funneling that, right. all those profits into health care for the people who are but, affected. But I think the long run, probably what you have to have is you've got to have some criminal liability on behalf of the board of directors. So if they sign off on these things, mm -hmm. that would have a bigger impact. We're certainly seeing that in the OSHA world right now. If you're if a worker is killed on the job, and the company you know saw the hazard, permitted to stay there, did nothing, it's a misdemeanor against the company. It's not against any individuals. Yeah. In other countries, someone on the board of directors of a company could go to jail, and that's very effective in changing corporate behavior. I like that idea. I liked the end when you're like, these are the things that we need. No study should be paid for by or through attorneys on behalf of a client. Have unconflicted scientists decide what the evidence means. Complete disclosure of funding and control. Protect the public from entire classes of chemicals, not just individual ones, which makes so much sense because they just – if it's not BPA, then it's a cousin, right? It's the it's same exactly. effect. Exactly. 
recognize the role of litigation and protecting public health. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, that in some cases, you know, the agencies are slow. They're not going to get to it. But, you know, this issue, for example, we may not get to – the government may never force Johnson Johnson to label their product as having asbestos. But with enough litigation and big legal costs and big awards, that's going to change their behavior. Yeah. And then organize. And that's the big one. I yeah. mean, people have to get together and demand this of their, their government and demand – because it's – you can't demand – people can't make a demand of a corporation. They cannot buy the product. It's That may have an impact on consumer-facing product companies. But there are so many companies that make chemicals that you never even know the name of. But the government has to step up to the plate here. They have to have the power to protect people. And they have to protect them in a way that – they can act before people are getting sick. Mm -hmm. And the only way we're going to do that is if we organize and we make that demand. And it's, it's happening now. Certainly people in communities which are affected by pollution are organizing and demanding that certain facilities shut down. I mean, you have to make sure to figure out a way to protect the workers there as well so they don't get – because you don't want to turn workers against the community. But we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And we really have to form organizations and support the organizations that take this on, that protect the science and protect the environment and protect our health. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's also cyclical. It's us. It's the earth. Yeah, and I don't know how many more people have to get yeah. sick. Well, that's the, the – we hope fewer and fewer if we do this right. Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Michaels. For more, head to drdavidmichaels.com and make sure to get a copy of his book, The Triumph of Doubt, available now. I highly recommend it. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>